Volume Three, Chapter Ten of The Smuggler by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten. Such as we have described in the last chapter were the fatal events to which Sir Edward Digby had alluded in the few words he had spoken to Zara Croyland, and it may be needless to explain to the reader that he had learned the tale from his servant just before he came down to dinner. Sir Robert Croyland, as we have shown, after some agitation and hesitation, quitted the drawing-room to meet, the first time for many years, the son of a man whom, at the instigation of others, he had cruelly persecuted. He paused as soon as he got into the passage, however, to summon courage, and to make up his mind as to the demeanour which he should assume, always a vain and fruitless task, for seldom, if ever, do circumstances allow any man to maintain the aspect which he has predetermined to affect. Sir Robert Croyland resolved to be cold, stately, and repulsive, to treat Sir Henry Leighton as a perfect stranger, and if he alluded to their former intimacy to cut the conversation short by telling him that, as all the feelings of those days were at an end, he did not wish to revive their memory in any shape. He did not calculate, indeed, upon the peculiar state of Leighton's mind at the moment, nay, nor even upon the effect of his former favourite's personal appearance upon himself. And when he entered the library and saw the tall, powerful, dignified-looking man, the pale, thoughtful, stern countenance, and the haughty air, he felt all his predeterminations vain. Leighton, on his part, had done the same as Sir Robert Croyland, and in setting out from Woodchurch had made up his mind to see in the man he went to visit, nothing but Edith's father, to treat him kindly, gently, and with compassion for his weakness, rather than anger at his faults. But as he rode along, and conversed with one who accompanied him thither, the memory of much that Sir Robert Croyland had done in former days came painfully back upon him, and combining with his treatment of Edith, raised up bitter and indignant feelings that he could have wished to quell. The scenes which he had passed through that day, too, had given a note of sternness to his mind which was not usual, and the few minutes he had waited in the library, when every moment seemed of value, added impatience to his other sensations. The baronet entered as firmly as he could, bowing his head and motioning coldly to a chair. But Leighton did not sit down, gazing for an instant on the countenance of Sir Robert, struck and astonished by the change that he beheld. That steadfast gaze was painful to its object, and sank his spirit still farther. But Leighton, the moment after, began to speak, and the well-known tones of his clear, mellow voice awakened the recollection of the days when they were once pleasant to hear. "'Sir Robert Croyland,' he said, "'I have come to you on business of importance, in which it is necessary for you to act immediately in your magisterial capacity.' "'I have no clerk with me, sir,' answered the baronet in a hesitating manner. At this late hour, it is not usual, except under circumstances. The circumstances admit of no delay, Sir Robert Croyland, replied Leighton. As the nearest magistrate, I have applied to you in the first instance, and have done so for many other reasons besides your being the nearest magistrate. Well, sir, what is your application? demanded Edith's father. I wish indeed you had applied to somebody else at this time of night, but I will do my duty. Oh, yes, I will do my duty. That is all that is required, sir, answered the young officer. My application is for a warrant to search the house of one Richard Radford, and I have to tender you, on oath, information 
that customable goods which have been introduced without the payment of duty are concealed on his premises. One moment more, if you please. I have also to apply to you upon similar evidence for a warrant to search his house for his son, Richard Radford, charged with murder, and, in the end, if you would allow me to advise you, you would instantly mount your horse and superintend the search yourself. There was a marked and peculiar emphasis on the last few words, which Sir Robert Croyland did not understand. The manner was not agreeable to him, but it was scarcely, perhaps, to be expected that it should be, for there had been nothing in his own to invite that kindly candour which opens heart to heart. All that had of late years passed between him and Sir Henry Leighton had been of a repulsive kind. For one youthful error, he had not only repelled and shut his house against the son, but he had persecuted, ruined, and destroyed the father, who had no part in that fault. Every reason, too, which he had given, every motive he had assigned, for his anger at Henry Leighton's pretensions to Edith's hand, he had set at naught, or forgotten in the case of him whom he had chosen for her husband. Even now, although his manner was wavering and timid, it was cold and harsh, and it was a hard thing for Henry Leighton to assume the tone of kindness towards Sir Robert Croyland, or to soften his demeanour towards him, with all the busy memories of the past and the feelings of the present thronging upon him, on his first return to the house where he had spent many happy days in youth. I am painting a man, and nothing more, and he could not, and did not, overcome the sensations of human nature. His words did not please Sir Robert Croyland, but they somewhat alarmed him. Everything that was vague in his present situation did produce fear, but after a moment's thought he replied coldly, "'Oh, dear, no, sir, I do not see that it is at all necessary I should go myself. I really think the application altogether extraordinary, seeing that it comes from, I am led to imagine, the lieutenant-colonel commanding the blank regiment of de Grooms, quartered in this district, who has no primary power or authority or even duty in such affairs, but can only act as required by the officers of customs, to whom he is so far subordinate.' but still I am ready to receive the information tendered, and then shall decide in regard to my own conduct, as the case may require. "'You are wrong in all respects but one, Sir Robert Croyland,' answered Leighton at once. "'I am empowered to act very differently from any officer who has been in command here before me. If my powers are beyond that which the law authorises, those who gave them are responsible to their country. But for an extraordinary case, extraordinary means are requisite.' and as I require of you nothing but what the law requires, I shall not pause to argue whether I am exactly the proper person to make the application. It might easily be made by another who is without, but I have reasons for what I am doing, and reasons, believe me, he added, after a moment's pause and reflection, not unfriendly to Sir Robert Croyland. Again his words and manner were peculiar. Sir Robert Croyland began to feel some apprehension lest he might push his coldness too far, but he did not see how he could change his tone, and he was proceeding, with the same distant reserve, to repeat that he was ready to receive the information in a formal manner, when Leighton suddenly interrupted him after a severe struggle with himself. "'Sir Robert Croyland,' he said, "'let us speak as friends. Let griefs and complaints on both sides be forgotten for the moment. Let us bury for the time seven years in oblivion. Look upon me, if it be but for a few minutes, 
as the Henry Leighton you knew before anything arose to produce one ill-feeling between us, for believe me I come to you with kindly sentiments. Your own fate hangs in the balance at this hour. I would decide it favourably for you, if you would let me, but you must shake off doubt and timidity. You must act boldly and decidedly, and all will be well. I do not understand what you mean, sir, cried Sir Robert Croyland, astonished at his change of tone, and without time to collect his ideas and calculate the probabilities. My fate? How can you affect my fate? More than you are aware, answered Leighton. Even now I affect your fate by giving you the choice of at once proceeding in the line of your duty against a bad man who has overruled your better nature too long, by allowing you to conduct the search which must be instituted either by yourself or others. In one word, Sir Robert Croyland, I know all, and would serve you if you would let me. "'You know all?' exclaimed Edith's father, in a dull, gloomy tone. "'You know all? She had told you, then. That explains it. That shows how she retracted her consent, how she was willing to-day to sacrifice her father. You have seen her. You have taught her her part. Yes, she has betrayed her parents' confidence.' Leighton could bear no more. Himself he could have heard slandered calmly, but he could not hear such words of her he loved. "'It is false,' he said. "'She did not betray your confidence. She told me no more than was needful to induce me to release her from bonds she was too faithful and true to break. From her I have heard nothing more, but from others I have heard all. And now, Sir Robert Croyland, you have chosen your part, but I have to call in those who must lay the required information.' Our duty must be done, whatever be the consequences, and as you reject the only means of saving yourself from much grief, though I trust not the danger you apprehend, we must act without you. And he rose and walked towards the door. Stay, Leighton, stay, cried Sir Robert Croyland, catching him eagerly by the arm. Yet a moment, yet a moment. You say you know all. Do you know all? All? Everything? "'All, everything,' answered Leighton firmly. "'Every word that was spoken, every deed that was done, "'more than you know yourself.' "'Then at least you know I am innocent,' said the old man. "'A calm but grave serenity took the place, "'on Sir Henry Leighton's countenance, "'of the impetuous look with which he had last spoken. "'Innocent,' he said, "'of intentional murder, "'but not innocent of rash and unnecessary anger.' "'And, oh, Sir Robert Croyland, if I must say it, "'most culpable in the consequences "'which you have suffered to flow from one hasty act. "'Mark me, you see the result. "'Your own dear child, against your will, "'is in the hands of a man whom you hate and abhor. "'You are anxious to make her the wife "'of a being you condemn and despise. "'The child of the man that your own hand slew "'is now lying a corpse, "'murdered by him to whom you would give your daughter.' "'Your own life is—' "'What, Kate? Kate Clare?' exclaimed Sir Robert Croyland, with a sudden change coming over his countenance. "'Murdered by Richard Radford? By his own hand, after the most brutal usage,' replied Leighton. Sir Robert Croyland sprang to the bell and rang it violently, then threw open the door and called aloud, "'My horse! My horse! Saddle my horse! If it cost me land and living, life and honour, she shall be avenged!' he added, turning to Leighton, and raising his head erect, the first time for many years. It is over. The folly and the weakness and crime are at an end. I have been bowed and broken, 
but there is a spark of my former nature yet left. I vowed to God in heaven that I would ever protect and be a father to that child, as an atonement, as some compensation, however small, and I will keep my vow. Oh, Sir Robert, cried Leighton, taking his hand and pressing it in his, be ever thus, and how men will love and venerate you. The barrier was broken down, the chain which had so long bound him was cast away, and Sir Robert returned Leighton's grasp with equal warmth. Harry, he said, I have done you wrong, but I will do so no more. I was driven, I was goaded along the road to all evil, like a beast driven to the slaughter. But you have done wrong too, young man. Yours was the first offence. It was, answered Leighton, I own it, I did do wrong, and I will make no excuse, though youth and love as true as ever man felt, might afford some. But let me assure you that I have been willing to make reparation. I have been willing to sacrifice all the brightest hope of years to save you, even now. I assured Edith that I would, when she told me the little she could venture to tell. But it was her misery that withheld me. It was the lifelong wretchedness to which she was doomed if I yielded that made me resist. Nothing else on earth should have stopped me, but now, Sir Robert, the prospect is more clear for you. Nay, do not speak of that, replied Sir Robert Croyland. I will think of it no more. I have now chosen my path, and I will pursue it, without looking at the consequences to myself. Let them come when they must, for once in life I will do what is just and right. And by so doing, my dear sir, you will save yourself, answered Leighton, moved by revenge, with no doubt whatsoever of his motive. After a concealment of six years, this base man's accusation will be utterly valueless. Your bare statement of the real circumstances will be enough to dissipate every cloud. I shall require that all his papers be seized, and I have many just reasons for wishing that they should be in your hands. I understand you, Harry, and I thank you, said Sir Robert Croyland. But with my present feelings, I would not... You do not understand me fully, Sir Robert, replied Leighton. I wish you only to act as you will find right, just, and honourable, and wait for the result. It will be, or I am much mistaken, more favourable to you, personally, than you imagine. Now, as you have decided on the true and upright course, let us lose no time in carrying it into execution. I will call in the men who have to lay the information, and when you have received it, I will place before you depositions which will justify the most vigorous measures against both father and son. In regard to the latter, I must act under your authority in my military capacity, as I have no civil power there. But in regard to the former, I am already called upon by the officers of the revenue to aid them in entering his house by force and searching it thoroughly. Call them in, Harry, call them in, replied Sir Robert Croyland. Every man is justified by the law in apprehending a murderer, but you shall have full authority. Kate Clare! How could this have happened? I will explain as we ride on, answered Leighton, going to the door, and speaking to one of the servants who was standing in the hall, he added, Desire Mr. Mole to walk in and bring the boy with him. In another minute, Mole entered the room with another man, holding by the arm the boy Ray, whom the smugglers had chosen to denominate Little Starlight. He came, apparently, unwillingly, for though ever ready for money to spy and to inform secretly, he had a great abhorrence of being brought publicly forward, and when on coming to Mole that evening with more information, he was detained and told he must go before a magistrate. 
he had made every possible effort to escape. He was now somewhat surprised on being brought forward after Mole had laid the information, to find that he was not questioned upon any point affecting the smuggling transactions which had lately taken place, as the evidence upon that subject was sufficient without his testimony. But in regard to the proceedings of young Radford, and to the place where he was concealed, he was interrogated closely. It was all in vain, however. To obtain a straightforward answer from him was impossible, and though Mole repeated distinctly that the boy had casually said the murderer of poor Kate Clare had gone to his father's house, little Starlight lied and prevaricated at every word, and impudently, though not unskilfully, attempted to put another meaning on his previous admission. As time was wearing away, however, Sir Henry Leighton at length interposed. "'I think it is unnecessary, Sir Robert,' he said, "'to push this inquiry further at present. "'As the whole house and premises must be searched on other grounds, "'we shall discover the villain if he is there. "'Mr. Mole and I have adopted infallible means, I think, "'to prevent his escaping from any point of the coast, "'and the magistrates at every port were this evening furnished with such information "'that, if they act with even a moderate degree of ability, he must be taken.' "'Besides, sir,' rejoined Mole, "'the frigate has come round, "'and she will take care that, with this wind, "'not a boat big enough to carry him over shall get out. "'We had better set out, your worship, if you please, "'for if old Radford gets an inkling of what is going on, "'he will double upon us some way.' "'I am quite ready,' said Sir Robert Croyland. "'I will call my clerk to accompany us as we go, "'in case of any further proceedings being necessary.' "'We must pass through the village where he lives.' "'With a firm step, he moved towards the door, "'and, strange as it may seem, "'though for six years, "'while supposing he was taking the only means of self-preservation, "'he had lived in constant terror and anxiety. "'He felt no fear, no trepidation now, "'when he had determined to do what was right "'at every personal risk. "'An enfeebling spell seemed to have been taken off his mind,' and the lassitude of doubt and indecision was gone. But such is almost always the result, even upon the nerves of our corporeal frame, of a strong effort of mental energy. It is one thing, certainly, to resolve and another to do, but the very act of resolution, if it be sincerely exerted, affords a greater degree of vigour, which is sure to produce as great results as the means at our disposal can accomplish. Energetic determination will carry men through things that seem impossible as a bold heart will carry them over the Alps, that, viewed from their base, appear insurmountable. Sir Robert Croyland did not venture into the drawing-room before he went, but he told the butler, who was waiting in the hall, to inform Sir Edward Digby and the family that he had been called away on business, and feared he should not return till a late hour, and having left this message, he went out upon the terrace. He found there a number of persons assembled, with some twenty or thirty of the dragoons. Five or six officers of the customs were present, besides Mole, but the darkness was too great to admit of their faces being seen, and Sir Robert Croyland mounted without speaking to any one. Sir Henry Leighton paused for an instant to give orders that the boy should be taken back to Woodchurch, and kept there under a safe guard. He then spoke a few words to Digby's servant, Summers, and springing on his horse placed himself at Sir Robert Croyland's side. The night was as dark as either of the two which had preceded it. The same film of cloud covered the sky. Not a star was to be seen. The moon was far below the horizon, and slowly the whole party moved on, 
two and two abreast, through the narrow lanes and tortuous roads of that part of the country. It halted for a minute in the nearest village, while Sir Robert Croyland stopped at his clerk's house, and directed him to follow as fast as possible to Mr. Radford's. And then, resuming their march, the dragoons and those who accompanied them wound on for, for between four or five miles further, when, as they turned the angle of a wood, some lights, apparently proceeding from the windows of a house halfway up a gentle slope, were seen shining out in the midst of the darkness. "'Halt!' said Sir Henry Leighton, and before he proceeded to give his orders for effectually surrounding the house and grounds of Mr. Radford, he gazed steadfastly for a moment or two upon the building which contained her who was most dear to him, and whose heart he knew well was at that moment wrung with the contention of many a painful feeling. "'I promised her I would bring her aid, dear girl,' he thought, "'and so I have, thanks be to God, who has enabled me.' Sir Robert Croyland, too, gazed with very different feelings, it is true, but still with a stern determination that was not shaken in the least. It seemed, when he thought of Kate Clare, that he was atoning to the spirit of the father by seeking to avenge the child, and the whole tale of her wrongs and death, which he had heard from Leighton as they came, had raised the desire of so doing almost to an enthusiasm. Human passions and infirmities, indeed, will mingle with our best feelings, and as he gazed upon Mr. Radford's house and remembered all that he had endured for the last six years, he said to himself, with some bitterness, "'That man shall now taste a portion of the same cup he has forced upon others.' Sir Henry Leighton woke from his reverie sooner than his companion, and turning his horse he spoke for a few moments with Mole, somewhat longer with another person wrapped in a dark horseman's coat behind, and then gave various distinct orders to the dragoons, who immediately separated into small parties, and taking different roads placed themselves in such positions as to command every approach to the house. Then riding forward with Sir Robert Croyland, the officers of customs and one or two soldiers, he turned up the little avenue which led from the road, consulting with Edith's father as he went. At about a couple of hundred yards from the house he paused, turning his head and saying to Mole, "'You had better, I think, all dismount.' and making fast the horses, get behind the nearest laurels and evergreens, while Sir Robert and I ride on alone, and ask admission quietly. When the door is opened, you can come up and make yourself masters of the servants till the search is over. I do not anticipate any resistance, but if the young man be really here, it may be made. He then rode on with the baronet at a quicker pace, the noise of their horses' feet as they trotted on, and approached the great doors, "'covering the sound of the movements of the party they left behind. "'The house to which the actual possessor had given the name of Radford Hall "'was an old-fashioned country mansion, "'and presented like a many another building at that time, "'several large iron hooks standing out from the brickwork "'on each side of the doorway, "'on which it was customary for visitors on horseback "'to hang their rein while they rang the bell, "'or till a servant could be called to take them to the stable.' Sir Robert Croyland was acquainted with this peculiarity of the house, though Leighton was not, and he whispered to his companion, "'Let us hook up our horses before we ring.' This was accordingly done, and then taking the long iron handle of the bell, Leighton pulled it gently. A minute or two after a step sounded in the hall, and a servant appeared, a stout, red-faced, shrewd-looking fellow, who at first held the great door only half open. 
As soon, however, as he saw Sir Robert Croyland's face, he threw it back, replying in an answer to the baronet's question as to whether Mr. Radford was home. Yes, Sir Robert, he has been home this hour. Leighton had stood back, and in the darkness the man did not see him, or took him for a groom. But when the young officer advanced and the uniform of the Dragoon Regiment became apparent, Mr. Radford's servant suddenly stretched his hand towards the door again, as if about to throw it violently too. But Leighton's strong grasp was on his shoulder in a moment. "'You are my prisoner,' he said in a low tone. "'Not a word, not a syllable, if you would not suffer for it. "'No harm will happen to you if you are only quiet.' At the same moment, Mole and the rest came running across the lawn, and giving the man into their hands, Leighton entered the house with Sir Robert Croyland. End of chapter 10